This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. Human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you, Joy, and thank you, Brad. One thing we want to do more of as the people of God is pray together. And it's uh, wonderful to have our little prayer meeting before church, and there are a few faithful people that are regularly there, but we want to be praying together as the body of Christ. So what we experience today, we're going to be doing fairly regularly with some variations so we can be seeking the face of God together. Hopefully, most of you know who the American musician Johnny Cash was, one of the greatest country musicians of all time. And some of you may have seen the biopic that came out a few years ago, Walk the Line. Now, that biopic compressed and adapted things for film, as of course always happens. In that film, you would have seen Johnny Cash turn around from his drug-addicted behavior, redeemed by his new marriage to June Carter Cash, over the course of, say, a month. Well, the reality was far more difficult because it took him years, in fact, decades, to fully emerge from his slavery to drugs. And there's a biography uh, that came out recently by a musician from Rolling Stone, and he describes uh, U2, the band U2, coming to visit Johnny Cash. And they all held hands around the table, and Johnny said, a beautiful grace And then he leaned towards Bono and he said, but I still miss the drugs sometimes. That was a moment of honesty that I hope we can all identify with because all of us in different ways feel the pool of the old life that we used to live before coming to Christ. And it may not be drugs, I hope it wasn't, but we feel the pool of the sin that we thought we had left behind. And the believers to whom Peter is writing are people who have come from a fairly uh, wild and crazy lifestyle. The lifestyle of pagans, of Gentiles, just the ordinary 
life of living in this part of the world involved going to the theater and seeing people have sex on stage, going to gladiator fights and watching people kill each other, going to orgies and drinking parties. Basically, Peter is describing a lifestyle of complete unrestrained indulgence in food and sex and drink and violence, saying no to nothing that fills our appetites. And for these people in the ancient world, this was just ordinary weekend fun. What they thought of, I'm sure, as just exuberant living. Grab everything you can and enjoy all that's available to you. And for these Christians, for some of them, this was an old life that was not too far in the past, and they would have felt enormous pressure to join in. Because these kind of activities that Peter describes are the regular, frequent behavior of family religious celebrations, trade guild meetings, and just civic worship. And these kind of things could not so easily be separated from ordinary life. It was just woven right into the fabric of society. And to say, you know what, I no longer want to participate in those kind of things meant you were essentially being completely anti-social. And here are these people that are converted some years ago, some, I suppose, quite freshly out of that. And this is what Peter describes as stuff that happened in your past. The time past is enough, more than enough, for all these kinds of activities. Now, when these people, these new Christians, stopped doing that, the first reaction of their unbelieving family and coworkers and neighbors was surprise. Now, wait a second. You went to the strip club with us just last month. Why are you saying no now? What, what's happened to you? Why, are you no long, why don't you anymore want to have fun? And it would have been difficult to have pressed on with their Christian convictions in this setting because like them, they wanted to fit in. It's just human nature. We hate feeling like we're the odd one out, that we're dressed differently, that we're behaving differently, that we don't belong. There's a deep human need to belong. And to step out of that stream and start going the other way is extremely difficult. And what these Christians found, as followers of Jesus have found down through the centuries, is that it is impossible to follow Jesus without giving offense. You are going to offend people if you follow Jesus. I'm not talking about offending people just by being a general jerk, but simply out of faithfulness to Jesus and saying no firmly to things that Jesus forbids you from doing, you are going to offend people. And this initial surprise and confusion that these pagans had towards these Christians quickly turns from surprise to anger. Whether it's because they feel threatened in some way or their own consciences are bothering them seeing these people living these pure lives, they get angry and they become verbally abusive. They malign and attack these Christians with their words. And these new Christians discover they have to make a choice. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to stick with my old friends? 
And of course, as much as possible, when we come to Christ, we want to maintain those friendships and bring others towards Jesus. But there often comes a point where those relationships get cut off, not even because of our own choice, but because the choice of others around us. And these Christians discover the pain of becoming a stranger in their own culture, a stranger in their own culture. They no longer belong. And what's happened to them is this. They have said no to that old sinful lifestyle to follow Jesus. The first verse of our text says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, it's careful we don't import Paul's theology here. Peter is his own man. For Peter, flesh does not mean like the old sinful nature. It simply means life in this world. Jesus was in the flesh during his time on earth, and we are in the flesh now. So to simply paraphrase what Peter is saying, I believe, is this. Being willing to suffer for the will of God proves that you've left your old life behind. How do I know that I'm really following Jesus? How do I know that I have actually put my faith in him? Well, I can look at the cost of following Jesus. That is a strong proof that I truly have left those old things behind because I'm now willing to pay the price. And of course, the opposite is also true. If I'm unwilling to pay the cost, if I'm continually taking the path of least resistance the easy way, and if I've given up nothing to follow Jesus, I should seriously question whether I'm following the crucified master at all. Whoever is suffering in this life has ceased from sin. They're through with that old way of life. Now, Peter is not talking about sinless perfection here. As these verses will make clear, there is sin that needs to be covered over and dealt with in the Christian community. But when we come to Jesus, there should be a decisive break with the past. I'm no longer the same person that I once was. Because not only have I put my faith in Jesus as my Savior, I am following his example as my Lord. And Peter exhorts us to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. And Jesus' attitude on earth was this. I am determined to do the will of my Father to the very end, no matter what suffering that involves. I will drink the cup that he gives me to the very bottom. And those whom the Spirit is changing into the image of Jesus also must arm themselves with that same resolve, that same determination that come what may, we will follow Jesus and we will do the will of God. Arm yourself. It's a strange weapon that we're called to pick up, not to inflict violence on other people, but to be willing to suffer it ourselves, to be willing to undergo whatever it takes to at last win the prize that is Jesus Christ. I would rather suffer than sin. 
And God calls us to lean away from our past life, to lean away from it as hard as we can, despite all temptation and all resistance, and to lean forward into our future life with God. These 11 verses are all about time. What time is it? Is a question that echoes again and again in the New Testament. Tick. 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 Time is passing and history is marching towards something. And that something is the day of judgment. And Peter assures his readers that despite the way that their neighbors and family and friends malign them and slander them and say horrible things to them and about them, remember this. One day, they are going to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. These people are going to give accounts. And whatever they say, it's always God who gets the last word. And we should be filled with, with fear at what awaits those who resist Jesus and his people. And it should cause us to cry out to God for their salvation. Because God will be very angry at those who abuse his children. The apple of his eye. It's like shoving your finger in God's eye, attacking his children. And God is going to vindicate them and take vengeance upon them. It's a fearful thing that awaits those who live this way. But judgment for non-Christians, eternal life for Christians. That's the other thing we are looking forward to eagerly. Then there's this rather confusing verse in verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God is. What on earth does it mean when Peter's talking about the gospel being preached even to the dead? And elaborate theories have been constructed about some kind of second chance for people who are dead and the gospel being preached to them and an ability for them to receive the gospel. But the simplest, most straightforward way of reading these verses, the one most consistent with the New Testament, is simply this. Peter is speaking of those who are dead now, but when they were alive, they heard the gospel and they responded to it. The brothers and sisters, the members of the church that these people belong to who have gone before them. And the question is this. Here they have been faithfully following Jesus their entire life. They've said no to sin. They have said yes to suffering if it means Christ. And yet these people are dying just like everybody else. And the question may have been flung in the faces of these Christians. What on earth is the use of following Jesus at such cost if you guys just die like everyone else? Look, we might as well eat and drink. We're all going to die tomorrow anyways. Let's grab as much fun and pleasure as we can now. Why on earth would you follow this Jesus? Here's the answer. Death is not the end. Even though these people were judged in this life according to human standards by human people who passed unfair condemnation on them, and they might have gone to their graves scorned and despised by their community, God is the one who is holding out eternal life in the spirit for them 
and for us. Whatever people say about us is not the true word that will last in the end. It's God's life-giving word. This world is not all that there is, and what we are experiencing is not the entire story. And the Holy Spirit calls us again and again to broaden our horizons, to open our eyes a little wider to perceive what is really going on behind the scenes and what the true destiny of history is this. And Peter reminds his readers and he reminds us the end is near. There is a goal, there is a destination, and everything is traveling rapidly towards the day when Jesus is going to tie up all loose ends and bring final salvation to this world. And that realization should recalibrate everything for us as believers. And our temptation enforced every day by the world is that this world is all that there is and the way things are today will be the way things are tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that And then we grow weary, don't we? You can hold out for a long time, but to hold out forever is something no human being can do. And the gospel reminds us the end is near. This is not the entire story. And everything the world takes for granted has an expiry date. And if you sniff it, it's already starting to go off. And what seems so massive and solid and irresistible, what seems futile to avoid or resist, turns out that it is already crumbling. And one day the whole thing is going to come crashing down. The power of this world is the lie that it's going to be like this forever. And that by not just going along with it, We're living in some weird and bizarre way that cannot last. The truth is this world is on its way to collapse and destruction because Jesus Christ is going to return. The world and its desires are fading away. And we must remind ourselves and one another continually about this to encourage each other, to give one another the courage to resist The courage to say, no, this is not the whole story. It's the kingdom of Christ alone that's going to last. The end is near. It's at hand. It's just outside the door, Peter says. Therefore, keep your head clear. Be self-controlled. Be steady. Have a clear mind. Don't be confused Don't panic. Don't run around in a frenzy. Keep a clear head because Jesus Christ is coming. And the prospect of the end times and the collapse of this world and the severe suffering that Christians will be called to undergo might well fog and confuse our minds. But God asks us to keep our heads clear. And the reason is this, for the sake of your prayers, the end of the world is coming, pray. 
The end of the world is coming. Get on your knees and seek the face of God. If you want to pray, you need a clear head. A head that has a firm grip on the truth of God and the true destination of this world. Isn't it amazing that as we think about the end, our priority is this, communion with God. Communion with God. The most important thing for me and for all of us to be doing as this world approaches its end is to have open lines of communication with God, to maintain our privileged position before the throne of God so we can seek his face, so we can ask for his power to endure for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters and to intercede for a lost and dying world. You know what's remarkable? The New Testament frequently, frequently speaks of the end of history and the return of Christ. And almost always, the point of these reminders is to change how we live now. Eschatology, the last things, lead to discipleship now. There is an interesting site called the Rapture Ready Index. I suggest you go and Google it uh, later today, the Rapture Ready Index. And it describes itself as a sort of Dow Jones industrial uh, average for the rapture. And so they score all these uh, different elements, including uh, Gog, which is Russia, and Iran, what's happening there, the price of oil, unemployment, ecumenism, um, the world beast empire, all these things, and they give them each a number. And it gets updated every week, and it gives you a single score at the end. And there's like a certain band for a low score, medium score, high score. Everything above 160, it says on the site, fasten your seatbelts. It was at 186 today, people. So there you go. Fasten your seatbelts according to the Rapture Ready Index. But you know, we don't need to go to those kind of sites and to delve into all sorts of weird and bizarre prophecy forecasts. The Bible itself tells us to be ready because Jesus Christ is returning. And it is odd that all these prophetic YouTube channels and conferences and books, they're all about speculation. None of them deal with how we actually live our lives. Wouldn't it be great to go to a prophecy conference where we talked about ethics and discipleship here and now? That's what this awareness of Jesus Christ, the master, is going to knock at the door at midnight. He's not going to ask, how accurately did you predict the time of my arrival? He's going to say, what are you doing right now to be ready for me? We're not called to be on the planning committee for Christ's return, but the welcoming committee. That's where we belong, busy for Jesus in obedience to him. So here we are, the end is coming, this extraordinary apocalyptic apocalyptic scenario and this extraordinary situation, we are called to the most ordinary and mundane behaviors. Not called to dig a nuclear bunker below your house or to stock up on canned food or buy weapons. The most ordinary acts of Christian discipleship. 
And it's all about relationship together. Here we are, we're leaning away from our past toward the future, but we're leaning together as a community in hope. About two years ago, I read a remarkable tale, a true story of two shipwrecks that happened in the 19th century somewhere north of Antarctica, one of those barren, puffin-inhabited islands. And these two shipwrecks actually happened at the same time. But the island was divided by mountains, so not only did the two groups never meet, they never were even aware of each other. Uh, The one group was quite large. It was about 30 people. And the other group was, I think, only, only three men. And those three men, it was like the captain and the engineer and another officer, they put their differences aside and they worked extremely hard to get off this island. First of all, they kept themselves alive and then they managed to get some chunks of metal from the wreck. They built their own forge on this desolated island. They made nails and they built a small boat to head north to safety. The other group was much larger, had far more skill and resources available. You would think that they would have done even better. Sadly, the opposite was true. The officers, anxious to maintain their high social standing, refused to help the men. They refused to go and uh, gather food or any of the ordinary mundane tasks. And the whole group fell apart. It was a disaster. Everyone went off to take care of themselves and almost everyone died. I think it was only the captain and a few other men who returned to England in total disgrace and scandal because of this experience. When stress and crises come, it brings out either the best or the worst in people. And when the church of Jesus is under pressure and it's experiencing opposition and persecution, people don't always respond well in community. Even faithful disciples of Jesus who are holding out against opposition and persecution, don't always relate to their brothers and sisters well. Perhaps it's because that kind of situation, you're developing like sternness and toughness and an unwillingness to bend. And those are not always the best qualities in living in community with other people. And so Peter calls the people of God in this area to live in love, to love one another earnestly, consistently stretching themselves to continuously love one another. And man, loving other people takes a bit of stretching, doesn't it? It takes a little bit of effort to maintain love for irritating, difficult, painful brothers and sisters. And we need to love because in the community, there are going to be a lot of offenses that need covering up. Peter is no idealist when it comes to community. He's no idealist. Community is difficult because people are really difficult. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a book called Life Together about his time in the 1930s building an underground seminary in Eastern Germany. And he says in that book that God hates all visionary dreaming. God hates all visionary dreaming, this is a shocking quote, all visionary dreaming about Christian community. Because we imagine, ah, what a wonderful thing it will be. We'll be gathered together, our faces will be glowing, we'll be singing worship songs and laying hands on each other. 
and it's going to be heaven on earth. And it's those kind of unrealistic ideals, Bonhoeffer says, that end up destroying Christian community. We must remember that we are gathered as sinners, redeemed sinners. We have the Holy Spirit in us, but there is sin whenever Christians get together. So away with all unrealistic dreams, we need to have clear-eyed views of ourselves and one another and recognize whenever we gather together, there is going to be hurt and offense and regrettable things are going to be said and done. Are we prepared to deal with that? That is the question. And we're called to love and to forgive. Peter is alluding to Proverbs 10 verse 12 here. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. He's not speaking of my love atoning for my own sins, but my love covering over and dealing with your sins and you to me, of course. The fabric of Christian community is constantly getting ripped and torn. The question is, are we the kind of people who are going to put our hurts aside hand them over to Jesus and do the difficult work of stitching up those tears? Or are we going to rip the garment further trying to get justice that only God can give? See, when we have these overly high ideals of Christian community, we will quickly get disillusioned when people hurt and offend us. If you're new to this church, we will hurt and offend you. That's not our plan. But it's going to happen, I'm sorry to say. And you are going to hurt and offend us. I mean, if we're really in community together, not just coming to church, doing our thing, and then separating after a few shallow words. But if we're really in community together, as all families know, we will hurt and offend one another. But when we are loving as Jesus does, we sacrifice our own justice and seek to cover up and deal with and reconcile those kind of issues. Love is difficult, and true love is always deeply practical. That's why Peter goes on to talk about showing hospitality. Here are these little churches throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Peter's writing to, and some of them, perhaps, there is a wealthy patron who has a large home with a courtyard the church can meet in, but many of these churches are with poor, lower-class people, and they're meeting in the back rooms of shops or little uh, flats in some crumbling tenements. They're gathering together to worship God. They are welcoming people in who need refuge from those who are persecuting them. They're cooking meals and feeding them to those who are hungry. And Peter urges them, do this, continue doing this without grumbling, without calculation, without wondering why hasn't, haven't they paid me back for what I've given to them. None of that. Doing that with completely open and generous hearts. See, our problem is we are all tempted to hold back in community, aren't we? To reserve ourselves, to protect our little fiefdom, to give enough to get by, but not to truly give, to open ourselves up. Because when you open yourself up, that entails risk, doesn't it? It means allowing yourself sometimes to be taken advantage of by unscrupulous people. It means getting hurt sometimes. 
But this is what God calls us to do without grumbling or calculation. You know, all these things, by the way, are in such contrast to the life of the pagans we were reading about. Those pagans are living lives of complete indulgence. Here, Christians are called to live lives of complete self-giving. It's not about me and how much alcohol and sex and food I can ingest into my system. It's about how much I can give and pour out to others as I experience the grace of God. As each one has received a gift, Peter says, use it to serve one another, to serve. You know, every person here is called to be a steward of God's varied, multicolored grace. This church, this room is a little economy. And all of us have been given grace by God, a charisma, a gift. And all those charismas and gifts are meant not for yourself, but for those around you. Your gift is not so you can congratulate yourself and compare yourself with your neighbor because you have, you believe, a superior gift to him or to her. It's to be offered towards them in love and service. As a steward, This is not my grace. It's not my talent that I created that originates within me. God has given me something and he's given you something as a steward, a steward who's going to have to give account. Did you wrap it in a napkin and bury it in the ground or did you use your gift completely to bless those around you? Everyone in this church is called to receive a grace from God. And everyone in this church is called to give a grace from God. We don't divide this church into 20% givers and 80% receivers. We're all receivers and we're all givers. And when we start living that way, we start experiencing the life of the Holy Spirit. As we do so, Peter says, if you're speaking, speak with the very words of God, with that kind of gravity and sense of this is not me trying to fix or give something with my own wisdom and insight. I have words from God for this person and everyone who serves to do so with the strength that God provides. So when we're speaking, there should be the sense for myself and for you that you're speaking with the very words of God. And when you're serving me or I'm serving you, there should be a sense God is doing something. I'm encountering God's voice. I'm encountering God's ministry when we're living the life of the Spirit. And what happens when we live that way with our gifts instead of dividing each other and competing with each other is we worship God as the ultimate source of all the good that we receive. All these graces come from God and they're diffracted through all these different people here and then they all come together and rise up in worship to God so that to him belong honor and glory and dominion forever. The most simple things Peter calls us to as we lean forward toward the end, loving one another, forgiving one another, welcoming one another, serving one another. And notice that Jesus Christ has done every one of these things for you. You're invited to love as Christ has loved you, 
to forgive as Christ has forgiven you, to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, and to serve one another as Christ served you and laid down his very life for you. Brothers and sisters, the world is opposed to us. It's opposed as it always has been to those who truly follow Jesus from their hearts. God is calling you today to strengthen your resolve, to follow him, to do his will, no matter what, by the power of the Holy Spirit, following the example of Jesus Christ. And may God give us grace to press through, to press on, to endure to the end, and so to be saved together as his people. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Father God, we thank you for this amazing grace that you have poured out on your people. And we rejoice that you are a generous God. You never begrudge or complain about your gifts and how little you receive back from us. But you open your heart and you pour everything you have upon your people. And Lord, help us to respond to your grace with your grace, O Lord. Fill us with your spirit to love one another, to welcome, to share, to serve, to give. And Lord, give us the grace as well to stand fast against those things which oppose us. Not just human beings, but principalities and powers, all the forces of wickedness in high places, O God. And how can we possibly endure unless you be with us? Fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.